Well, good morning. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. So you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll begin in verse 12. But while we're turning there, I want you to imagine the situation. Imagine you have, you're living a normal life, all is well. You have a beautiful wife, a couple kids, financially stable job, um, great family around you on both sides. Everything is as it should be. And imagine over the period of a couple months, you start feeling this abdominal pain. It starts radiating to your back. You start feeling in general just more exhausted, just fatigued. You start feeling just a lack of appetite. You've lost 10, 15, 20 pounds now, not even trying to lose the weight. You look at your skin and it begins more taking on this more yellow pigment. And the last week you've even noticed that the yellowing has even gone to the whites of your eyes. And you figure at this point, well, it's been a couple years since I've had a doctor's appointment, so I should probably go and check up and see what's, what's happening. And uh, you go to the doctor and you start running a couple tests and, and uh, he does a couple different labs and he comes back to you and he has you sit down and he says this one word that just pierces to your core, he says, cancer. And for the next couple of minutes, he discusses the diagnosis that you just received, but you don't hear any of it. All you hear over and over and over again in your mind is cancer. And you finally begin to hear and pick up again what he's saying, and the doctor tells you, you have stage four pancreatic cancer, and it's spread throughout your body to your liver as well as to your lungs. But, he says then, the good news is that it's just been discovered that there's a brand new cure for this cancer. It's never before been available, and I'm so sure that it will work with you, that in the next six months you should be totally cancer-free as long as you stick with my treatment plan. And up until this point, there has never been a cure for stage four pancreatic cancer. So you're exhilarated. You're so overjoyed to know that there is a solution to your problem. So you begin regularly attending cancer survivor meetings. You begin taking the medications and you go forward with the treatment plan that he's prescribed. You begin attending lengthy appointments for him. You're convinced that this treatment so, uh, so so much that you're willing to tell countless friends and family about how you have found the cure to your cancer. You've even decided that because this is a new medication, you want to be the face of this advertisement campaign. You decide that you will then take on the advertisements, the billboards, the TV commercials, <clears throat> in order that others might also find out how they can get rid of stage four pancreatic cancer. You spend countless hours, days, and even weeks of your life making sure that you adhere exactly and faithfully follow your doctor's plan of care. But during one of your appointments, you follow up and uh, you speak with a doctor and you tell him, you know, I, I don't think this is working. I, I feel more exhausted. I, I've been losing another 10 pounds since I last saw you. Uh, my, I'm more yellow than I was before. Uh, I'm not sleeping anymore. I just, I, I feel awful. You feel weaker and weaker and and, uh, you know, you just, I, I don't know what's wrong. So he does some more tests for you, and, and he goes through, and he comes back to you, and he says, you know what, after running all these tests, it looks like you have less than a week to live. That, that treatment I gave you didn't cure you in the, little, in the slightest. The medication that he promised you would cure you didn't help you at all. It did nothing to prevent the progression of that disease. The cancer actually spread more rapidly while you were on that medication. And then you look at the doctor so frustrated and confused and, and angry and just unsure as to why this didn't work. And you're in your final week of life 
And you ask him, how is it that that didn't cure me? How is it that it didn't work? You promised me it would. And how would you feel if the doctor came back to you and replied to your question and says, well, I never promised you it would work. I just gave you the medication because I thought that would give you a little bit of hope in your final days of life. <laughs> what would be going through your mind at this point? You probably think to yourself, what a waste. I've spent all this time on these treatments, all this time going to these cancer survivor meetings, all this time with this medication and the money I spent on it. I spent countless times just going over my head how life would be without cancer. You've gone on, um, you'd just be angry and frustrated because you were told that this cure was going to help you, but it didn't help you in the slightest. And now you'd wish, at least wish that you have spent the last few months and, and weeks of your life with your family, or at least enjoying what you love doing, rather than spending it at these office appointments. You'd realize that this medication, this treatment was worthless. Your doctor's advice, his plan of care was pointless and a scam. You had placed your faith, believing fully, going out telling other people, and you not only wasted your own time, but their time telling them about it. You placed your hope in a cure and you fully believed that it was going to work. And yet because it didn't and because you believed that lie, you're the most pitied of all people to believe that something that would help you never could. That'd be a terrible reality to find out that you've been believing a lie the whole time. And now most of us will never have pancreatic cancer, much less stage 4 cancer. But we have a little problem even worse than cancer. Our problem is sin. And there is no known medication to take for it. There's no treatment plan available for us. And each person was born a sinner. Each person has sinned. And each person is destined to go to the lake of fire, eternally separated from Christ, if there is no solution for their sin problem. And as we learned last week, we received the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ came down to this earth to be born of a virgin, to live among men, to be rejected by the people he ultimately went to the cross to die for, and, he, and we believe this truth. We believe that he went to the cross and was buried. We believe that he was resurrected on the third day. We believe that he appeared over to 500 people who were all eyewitnesses of his resurrection. His resurrection alone is probably the most well-documented historical events to ever take place. There's so much overwhelming evidence to prove the resurrection of Christ. But not everyone in the Church of Corinth, as we see here in this week, understood the evidence of what it would mean and what it should mean to them that Jesus had been risen. And there was a confusion in the minds of believers. Apparently, some of them did not believe that there could be a resurrection from the dead. And it raised all sorts of questions in the mind of believers. It's not that they had doubts that Christ was risen, but they had doubts that there could be a resurrection from the dead. And so the questions that brings up is that if Christ is not risen from the dead... What difference would it make? Would the gospel still be the same? And if Christ is not risen, what would it mean for those who had believed in Jesus Christ? And if we are, you know, if this is not true, if the dead are not risen, you know, what if we're counting on a salvation that doesn't exist? Would we be like that pancreatic cancer patient who believed in a cure for his disease only to find out that it was all in vain? And so in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19, it discusses all these questions and how crucial it is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened, but it also shows what it would mean if it never happened. So let's read our passage today. It's 1 Corinthians 15. 
uh, verse 12, and we'll go up to verse 19. So it says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we testify of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. So we see in verse 12, Paul saying that, Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Before this section, Paul was addressing the fundamentals of the faith. He reminded the Corinthians about the gospel message, stating that Jesus had died, he was buried, and that he rose again. We have to believe the gospel to be saved, and the resurrection is a crucial, pinnacle point of the gospel message that we preach and we believe. So in this section, Paul is addressing concerns that some had about the resurrection of the dead. Most agreed that, again, like I said, that Christ had been risen from the dead. This wasn't the issue in their mind. The issue was that some Corinthians were teaching that believers would not be resurrected. They denied our resurrection as believers. They're saying that once we die from this earth, there is no resurrection. That's it. You know, Satan, he, he loves to lie. Uh, you, you, John 8 tells us that he is a liar and the father of lies. And this was one, another one of his lies that he had, uh, had brought forth and some of the Corinthian believers had believed it. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, the first lie that he probably told Eve was, you will not surely die. And she ended up taking of that fruit. And uh, sure enough, Adam did as well. But here, his lie is, you will not surely live. So whether the lie they had from Greek philosophers or wrong teaching from the Sadducees, whatever the source of the lie, it's ultimately founded from Satan, who is the father of lies. And he constantly seeks to undermine the truth, constantly seeks to, to twist what Christ has said will happen. He doesn't want anyone to believe the truth. And with anything that we hear, we have to compare it to the only reliable source of truth, and that is the Word of God. We have to ask ourselves, is this concept biblical, or is this just another one of Satan's lies? And there's going to be many people throughout our lifetime who will bring up half-truths or prevent just ideas that are completely false altogether. And we have to continually rely on his truth to distinguish between what is truth and what is a lie. Or else we'll, too, be in the similar situation as the Corinthian believers, having a confusion over if there is a resurrection from the dead or not. So it looks like the Corinthian believers had believed the lie of Satan, and Paul sees this, this will be a threat that's going to undermine not only just the Christian faith, but it will destroy the church of Corinth and cause divisions. And he asked them plainly that if we're preaching that Christ has been raised from the dead, and we're saying that this is an essential part of the gospel, then how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so well documented. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. The fact that he rose from the dead validates the principle of resurrection. So if Christ rose from the dead, then it's not impossible for us too to be risen from the dead. So Paul goes on in verse 13 
and says that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. So Paul basically says, all right, if, if you refuse to believe that there is a resurrection from the dead, then you have to accept the fact that Jesus Christ never rose again from the dead. Are you willing to accept that? Are you willing to believe that so firmly that you would say that not even Christ is risen? And this really brings us to the biggest question of the whole passage. What would it mean if Christ had never risen from the dead? What would it mean if Christ had never risen from the dead? Have you ever thought about that? About what that would imply? Because I've always understood that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and I, I've learned that from a very young age, but I really didn't understand until recently the implications of what that would mean if he hadn't risen. But after going through these verses, it's, it's crucial. It makes me just realize how serious the resurrection is. Because without it, we have no hope for today, for tomorrow, for the future, for eternity. There is no future for us. So if Jesus Christ did not, raise, did not rise from the dead, then there is six conclusions that we have to accept. The first being that our preaching is empty. Our preaching is empty. Secondly, our faith is empty. Third, we are a false witnesses of God. We're also, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. Fifth, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And lastly, we are of all men most pitiable. So we see the first point that Paul brings across in verse 14 about our preaching being empty. He says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and our faith is also empty. You might think, well, why is our preaching empty? It's empty because it contradicts the very thing that Christ promised on many different occasions would happen, and that is that he would rise from the dead. Jesus Christ made so many attempts on his earthly ministry um, to just make sure that everyone was well aware that this would take place. If you think back to the occasion when he cleansed the temple and overthrew the money changers, he tells the Jews about his resurrection to come. We see it in John 2, verses 18 through 22. It says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Not only is that the only occasion, he then goes on to predict his resurrection in front of the scribes and the Pharisees. You see in uh, Matthew 12, verse 38 through 40, it says that, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to them except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He then tells his disciples exclusively in Matthew sixteen twenty one, saying, From this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Again, if that wasn't enough evidence, he goes on further. He predicts it again to another crowd of people. And repeatedly, he predicts his own death and resurrection. 
And his resurrection is an undeniable proof that he is God. We see again, he tells us in John 10, 17 through 18. Therefore my, God lo- therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. This was such a well-known um, event that was going to take place that even Pilate, the one who gave him over to be crucified, the one who ordered that they give Barabbas and, and allow him to go free and Jesus to be crucified, ordered that guards be placed to secure the tomb in order to prevent any kind of resurrection. It tells us in this encounter uh, in Matthew 27, 62 through 64, Then on the next day, following the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remembered while he was still alive how this deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away, and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So there's so many promises that Christ has made to so many different groups of people one more privately, some more to bigger crowds, some exclusively to one person. But no matter how many times he said it, the promise remains the same, that Christ will rise from the dead. He promised that it would happen. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we have to conclude a couple different things about him. We have to conclude that he's a liar. We have to conclude that he is uh, false in what he said. He's an imposter. He's a fraud. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's not all-powerful. You couldn't say that he had authority from God to do these things as he said he did if he didn't rise. So our conclusion would be that if Christ has never risen from the dead, if, if he never rose again, then he lied and he is not worthy of our trust. And every preacher who has ever preached about the resurrection of Christ and about what Christ has done, their preaching is in vain. It's a bunch of empty lies. Their preaching is totally worthless if the one that they promised would overcome death still remains in the grave. So first of all, our faith would be empty. Our, uh, our preaching would be empty. Secondly, our faith would also be empty. We're preaching that Christ rose from the dead. We're preaching that he defeated sin. That he defeated sin's curse, which is death. His resurrection proves that. And we have our faith and we placed our trust into that good news. The gospel message is what we share and proclaim to everyone else. We're saying that sin no longer has a stronghold on us. We're saying that death cannot defeat us. Jesus died for us. He rose again, and the grave could not keep him. And nor can it keep us. And we'll rise again and live with him. And this is the very fundamental of our faith. But if Christ did not rise from the dead, then neither will we. And our faith in this resurrection is totally in vain if he didn't rise from the dead. And our faith that we'll, we'll one day meet him again in, the, in heaven is also in vain. Our entire future, yes, even our eternity, is built upon the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, then the whole message is meaningless. It's empty. It's useless. So Paul goes on again to bring upon the third point in verse 15, that if Christ isn't risen from the dead, then we're false witnesses of God. He says, yes, we are, found, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. A false witness is someone who says something happened, 
or says something, uh, says someone did something that they did not do. They're, they're basically a lying witness. If you think back to the doctor in the pancreatic story, uh, he claimed that he had the cure for the disease. He claimed that he had the answer for his solution. But based upon your belief in what the doctor said, you went about and you testified to the world saying that this would cure all people who suffered from pancreatic cancer. Yet you were a false witness because you said that this medication would cure, would cure you, which it didn't. And in doing so, you've not only shown that the, di- the doctor is a liar, but you too have lied because you've testified falsely based upon the lie that was told to you. So when we preach Christ's resurrection and we're saying that God raised up Jesus Christ from the grave, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we're telling a lie about God. We're claiming that God did something that he did not do. And here Paul is saying that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he and all the other apostles are liars. They've testified falsely about God if Christ is not risen. So the bottom line is that if there is no resurrection, then we are false witnesses of God. And again, Paul is trying to stress the idea that are you sure that are you are you sure about the implications of what you're putting your faith in? Are you sure about what you're saying? He again reminds us in verse 16 that if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. That is a huge statement to say. He's telling that if it's impossibility for men to rise, then no one can ever rise from the dead. Not even Christ could have risen. He wants them to seriously ponder and, and take into consideration what they're trusting, what the lie that they've believed implies to their own life, and what it implies to the whole gospel message in general. Paul then continues on in his fourth point, saying, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And this is probably the most difficult conclusion for us to accept as believers. Because if Christ is not risen, then we are still under our sins. We are still in the guilt of our sins, in the condemnation of our sins. Because it was through his death and through his sacrifice on that cross that our sins were forgiven, that we receive our forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7 tells us that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And God made it clear from very early on in the Old Testament that forgiveness of sins, blood had to be shed in order to receive forgiveness of sins. He tells us in Hebrews 9, 22, that according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. So we're we're trusting on, on his blood spilt for us for our forgiveness of sins. Without that blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yet if Christ shed his blood and gave up his life for us, but had never risen from the dead, then how would we know if we were justified? And how would we know if we would receive eternal life? The Bible tells us how we would know that in Romans 4, 24 through 25, that he was raised for our justification. It says, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Ultimately, if resurrection is an impossibility, then not even Christ is raised from the dead. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, then death had power over him. And it defeated him when he died on that cross. And if death had a power over Jesus Christ, 
then his claims while on earth that he was God are totally false and he is not God. And if Jesus is not God, then he's not perfect and he cannot pay for your sins. And he couldn't pay for my sins because he would be a sinner. And if Jesus cannot pay for our sins, then our sins still need to be paid for. And if our sins are not paid for before God, then I am still in my sins. And if Jesus is not risen, he is not able to save me and I remain in my sins. And how futile would my faith be? That is the conclusion that we have to accept. And that's probably the most difficult one for us to to wrap our minds around. That if Christ has not risen, we are still in our sins. Fifth, Paul talks about, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What's probably even more troubling than that is that all those saints beforehand who have died believing in Christ would be totally without hope. They had placed their faith in Christ while on this earth. They had suffered for his cause. They had loved the Lord. They spent time praying with him. They spent enormous amounts of their lives devoted to him. They had endured many hardships. They endured many trials. They even told others about the salvation and about how they too can have a personal relationship with Christ. They spent their lives devoted to him. But if Christ was never able to raise himself from the dead, then how would these men and women also be raised from the dead? Why why would we be able to believe that they also could be? If Christ is still in the grave, how would it be possible? They would have perished, meaning that they would have gone forever with no hope for eternity in heaven to be spent with Christ because they would still be in the grave with him. And finally, Paul's final conclusion that if Christ is not risen, we have to accept that we are of all men most pitiable. He says that if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. If we've been banking on the fact that Christ rose from the dead and it's changed the way we're living our lives, if we are living a life preparing for that day to see him one day, for that future forever in heaven with him. But if Christ is not risen, then we've been completely fooled by him. And any sacrifice that we've made to him, any time spent praising him, any time spent learning more about him, investing our lives telling others, has been totally wasted and our future is shattered. We are the most sad and pitiable people to ever have walked the face of this earth if Christ is not risen. You think back to Paul's trials on this earth, his sorrows that he endured for the gospel's sake. He tells us about it very plainly in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. He says, Are there ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In death often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbery, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches. 
What would be the point of Paul being so deeply concerned about the churches believing in a Savior who never rose from the dead? What would be the point of him enduring shipwreck, these perils, these being beaten by a rod, imprisonment? What's the point of it all? He would have been doing that all for an empty gospel, and a Savior who could never raise himself up again. To endure all that would be pathetic and idiotic. And quite, put, quite plainly, if Christ didn't, raise from the, didn't rise from the dead, I might, we might as well just end the message here. We might as well all go home, close the church down, and never come back, because there is no point in continuing this. There is no hope for the future, so we're better off just at least enjoying the last few moments of our lives that we have here, with whatever we have. Just, you know, it's, it's so short anyways. What's the point of going on any further with spending it with a Savior who did not rise? We're chasing after someone who was unable to conquer death. In fact, Paul even tells us this very thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. That if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Solomon, probably one of the most memorable for Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, comes to this final conclusion in Ecclesiastes. That Paul did as well. In this, in this book, if you're not familiar with it, he sets out to find out all the pleasures of this world and he offers to live in a life that there is no God or live in a way that there is no God. And unaided by God, Solomon finds out on this pursuit to find if there is any enjoyment outside of God. And in the end, his pursuit is vanity, it says. He says that it's emptiness, it's a waste of time. And the pleasures of this world, he says, are as elusive as trying to harness the wind or trying to grasp for, grasping after wind. And in a very similar sense, if Christ is not risen, then we would be on the same pursuit as Solomon. We'd be just chasing after what little pleasure that this world has to offer. And even though we know that it would never satisfy because Solomon has tried it, he's gone through it all so that we don't have to, he's... He's endured what it was like to try and go every sense, every sensation, every enjoyment that mankind says is pleasurable. And yet at the end, he says it's vanity. And even though we'd never be satisfied, at least that unprofitable search would be better off than worshiping and believing in a false teacher who claimed that he could rise again and never did. In Solomon's conclusion, we read in Ecclesiastes 8.15, he says, so I commend enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. On this earth, we would come to the exact same conclusion, that if Christ is not risen, we might as well enjoy the little time that we have left on here, because life is so short and we don't have a hope for tomorrow. And I could just end it that way right now because that is the end of my section. And I could just close in prayer. <laughs> but thankfully, we'll cover the next five words. Um, and what an absolute sigh of relief for Paul to hear when he proudly tells us in verse 20 the truth and the hope that we have because of the resurrection of Christ. It says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Christ is risen. What, there's a full assurance we no longer He's no longer in the grave. Death could not defeat him. And because of this fact, we don't have to worry about the implications that we just talked about of what it would mean if Christ hadn't risen because we know that he did rise and he is alive. 
And we have this wonderful blessings and truths that we can hold on to because we know that our Savior lives. The first one that we know is that our preaching is life-changing. We have the greatest message mankind can ever hear. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? That this is the greatest message. Mankind is longing to hear hope, to find some kind of you know, purpose for life. And we hold that truth. We have a life-changing message. We have the message that we have sinned and we are guilty before a holy God. And yet that same God, He loved us so much that He did not want us to perish. He wanted to spend eternity with us, so He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to die for us. He came to reconcile us to Himself, to restore that relationship that sin had broken. And He didn't just die, but He also rose again. And this proves that He's all-powerful because He was able to defeat sin and death because it showed that it didn't have control over Him. It shows that He's perfect and sinless because He didn't die Um, because death didn't just hold him in the grave. And he was able to take my place. It also shows that he's all-knowing because beforehand he told us that he would rise again. We have all the answers that the world longs for. They're searching endlessly to find out the meaning of life and what happens after they die. And because of Jesus Christ and who he is and his promises, We can boldly say that our preaching is not in vain, but it's a life-changing message for all mankind. Secondly, our our faith, it's meaningful. Because Christ has risen from the grave, our faith in in his resurrection, it's not in vain. Our faith that he will rise again and meet him is something that we can have full assurance with, we can cling to, we can look forward to, because we know that day is soon. Our entire future, our entire eternity is securely placed by our faith in Christ because we know that we have a risen Savior. And we can trust the Lord because we know that His Word is true. We also see that because Christ is risen again, we are found truthful witnesses of God. We proclaim that Christ has been raised, and indeed He has. We hold to the numerous passages where God promises and tells of His Son dying, of him being buried, and of him rising again. And we firmly believe it because his word is true. Fourth, we can believe that our faith is not futile and we are no longer in our sins. Because of his resurrection, we no longer have to worry, was Christ's payment sufficient? Do I need to look for another savior? No. Christ paid it in full. We're no longer under the guilt and the condemnation of our sin. We're no longer needing forgiveness. His resurrection tells us that God was completely satisfied with the payment of Jesus Christ on that cross. And therefore, we have been justified through his payment that Jesus defeated sin. And through this, we receive that justification. We can confidently say that we are no longer in our sins. Fifth, Believers who have already died are now in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ to spend forever with him in eternity. All believers did not, all believers who have died already and passed on from this earth, their faith was not in vain. They didn't wait and spend their life pointlessly telling others about Christ. They didn't waste their life on this earth. No, they used it for God's purpose and God's glory, and they now have the opportunity to spend it forever with him. Their bodies will rise from the grave. 
And we have this hope as believers too that if we pass on from this earth and if our life was over today, that it would just be the beginning of our life because we would go to heaven and forever be in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, because Christ is risen and because we placed our hope in him, we of all men are the most joyous and we have a true purpose for our lives. His resurrection's given us happiness. It's given us meaning. It's given us a purpose. He showed us that there is better things than to eat and drink and be merry. We don't have to spend our lives like Solomon, just looking aimlessly for what, what is vanity, what is just striving after wind, because that's all that there is in life. No, there is so much more. He's shown us that true joy comes from trusting in Him and knowing Him better each and every day. And as believers, we have such a wonderful hope, so many promises, because Christ is risen. And the hymn writer of the song, Because He Lives, came to the same conclusion about the wonderful promises that we have because of his resurrection. And I'll just read the chorus. It says, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. We talked earlier about Satan being the the father of lies and a liar. And we know that this whole confusion was brought up because of the lies that were seeped into the church and that skewed people's minds. And some were believing that it wasn't possible for the resurrection of the dead to happen. And today there's still the same lies being spread. The lies for today are that merely... Christ died, and he he died for a good cause, and he was a good man. He spread a good message of love to the world, and, you know, but people live as totally unaware to the message and the significance of why he died and why he rose again. People live today as if Christ is still in the grave. You can go, uh, you know, you can't even go a week without hearing people say, just enjoy your life to the fullest, just live your life for what you have, because you only have one, you know, and Enjoy yourself you know, while you can, because it's short. And all these phrases are just this worldly mindset that comes directly from the lies of Satan, who would have you believe that, as if Christ wasn't risen from the grave. I mean, if you think about it, what is the point of life? Honestly consider, what, you know, what's the purpose of it? If all there is to life is just enjoying yourself and eventually dying, what a waste that would be. And even Solomon comes to that same conclusion, that it, it's vanity. But the Bible tells us otherwise. He tells us that though we have sinned, there is a Savior who was willing to die in our place. And he paid for our sins in full. And it's sad for me to think that you could hear this message and still choose to reject that salvation. Still choose to say that I don't need that. That even though he said he did that, it doesn't apply to me. It's not meaningful. It's just another fable. It's just another story. It's not. It's sad for me to think that you can come to that conclusion. And if you do come to that conclusion, if, if you hear this message and all that, it just goes over your head and you just say, you know, that's, that's not for me. Then, you, it's, then it tells us that you would be the most pitiable of all men because you would still remain in your sins. Jesus Christ, he's made a way through his death on that cross. And if you haven't trusted him for his salvation, then you remain in your sins. But you don't have to. You must place your faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done on the cross for you, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. 
And you can be free from your sins, from the guilt and the shame that's associated with it. You can go from being the most pitiable of all men to being the most joyous, happy, purposeful, meaningful person on this earth. And if you haven't come to this conclusion, if you haven't reached the point in your life where you've trusted in Christ, there is no better time than right now to make that decision, to choose to place your faith in Him. There is no one else in this world who has ever loved you so much as He did. There is no one else who was able to take your punishment. There is no one else who could ever even be perfect to take your place, let alone willing. And yet Jesus Christ was able and willing, and He came here for you. He loved you to the point of death to pay for your sins, and now He offers you this eternal life, this free gift, and this promise to be with Him forever. If you read these promises that we've talked about, it's so wonderful and so amazing. And you too can hold on to those promises if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And my final just question for you is, will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior today? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the wonderful truths that we are no longer in our sins. Lord, our faith is not futile, but rather, Lord, it's purposeful. Lord, we know that... Um, our preaching has not been in vain, Lord. We know that all these things that we've endured for you, Lord, are for a purpose. And Lord, we know that it's amazing to know that you have risen from the dead. You are no longer in the grave, Lord. And because of that, we have a hope for tomorrow. And Lord, we're just so thankful for these truths and these promises that you've shown us in the book of 1 Corinthians. And Lord, we just pray that if anyone has not yet trusted in you, if, no one, if anyone in here has not come to know you as their Savior, Lord, that today they would trust you. Today they would make that decision to come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I just pray that you would just um, convict the person and just bring them to yourself. Thank you, Lord, again for these truths. Thank you, Lord, that you are risen and that you are alive and we will spend eternity with you in heaven. We just thank you for all these things in your name. Amen.